On the Empire Podcast this week, we man up as Simon Pegg enters the pod booth for a record-breaking fourth time and leaves clutching a prize. Plus, all unusual movie news and nonsense on the movie podcast that's gonna pod historic on the Fury Road. Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast in association with Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, blog, portfolio, or online store for a free trial and 10% of your first purchase on new accounts. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code EMPIRE. EMPIRE. Once again, on the Emperor Podcast, we, uh, I'm going to go full Emerton Joe right now. Once again, hang on, how do you do, how do, you do this? Do you cup your, how does he do it? Yeah. Once again. That's not, that's terrible. Awful, you're in slightly Bane territory. Yeah, I know, but it is Bane, isn't it? Once again, once again, we honour our two colleagues of such lethal cunning... My Imperator, Art Houseyosa, <laughs> Phil Dissimlian, <laughs> as he brings back subtitles from the subtitle farm. What's happening? This is good. No, no, you're on a roll. You're on a roll. Keep going. It seemed like such a good idea. subtitle farm. Roll with it. Roll with it. When I this this morning, it seemed like such a good idea. Once again... It's gone full bang. Once again, we welcome our Imperator, Sorkin Brown Nosier. <laughs> James Dyer, as he brings back West Wings from West Wing Town. Hello, how are you? I'm, I'm good, thank you, Chris. There you go. Let's, let's put one in the brain of that particular um, intro. I um, pretend, should we all just pretend that never happened? I thought you salvaged, you salvaged mediocrity from the jaws of <laughs> great catastrophe. disaster. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that worked. We'll be doing that again. Quick update before we get on uh, on the Mad Max Fury Road spoiler special situation. Uh, try saying that when you're drunk. Many of you want us to do one. We want to do one. Problem is, the one we don't have a lot of time. We can't record them this week because we're right up against lots of people in the pod with lots of pod interviews and day jobs and whatnot. So we've taken the decision that we're not going to do one during its cinematic release. Uh, we're going to do one for its Blu-ray and DVD release instead. And hopefully, maybe then we'll be able to actually get someone in to talk about it as well from a filmmaking point of view, which would be which would be lovely. That would be that would be our dream our ideal. Uh, so if that has angered you, then do let us know. But at the moment, we just don't have the time to do it. Anyway, on with today's show. Uh, here are the questions you've been sending in via Twitter. Uh, here's one from at Metafets, Metafets, who says, what was the last film scene that truly awed you, that left you in a state of awe? Everybody's going to say Mad Max here for for many reasons, not least because it's the, probably the last thing we can remember off the top of our heads. But I'm going to say... <laughs> our memories are that short, are <laughs> Well, mine is. Yeah. Jason Statham's disguise in Spy. Well, we can, um, it hasn't or, come out yet, Phil. Yeah, okay. That's but, right, we've seen it, we yeah. can say that. I'm not allowed to say that. All it right. awed me. Don't give it away. Did, okay, I'm not giving it away, but, but it, it was it an amazing you. disguise which awed me, yes. Okay. Uh, you were awed I by awed Spy. By really? A little bit, yeah. That, so moment. that had the same effect on you as the the Star Child sequence at the end of two thousand and one, or the Star Destroyer going over the the camera at the beginning of A New Hope, did it? Yeah. <laughs> good. I just wanted good. to make sure good. we were on the same page. Yeah. That's a good question. It's a good question. When was the last time that we truly stumbled out at the cinema, or or saw a sequence that that left us agape with wonder? To give it a serious answer, I think. It's a particularly good question because it asks, like, how much of how much VFX stuff leaves mm. you with a sense of awe? How much of the... For me, it's practical things when you see practical effects, mm. which is why Mad Max was such a breathtaking experience because it was so in-camera throughout mm. and you see things and you say, how is that happening? 
Whereas there's a bit of smoke and mirror with VFX, which is fantastic. But at the same time, does it give you that sense of, you know, magnificence? Yes, it does. All right. Because my answer to this uh, would actually be San Andreas, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. Oh, uh, I did not see that guy. Uh, well, I bet <laughs> you didn't. No, no, and as we will discuss later, it is a, it's a very flawed film. But there are some sequences in it that you just find yourself with both hands gripping the seat rest, mar- goofy grin on your face, just going, what the actual shizzle is happening uh it's completely crazy like there's, the f- there's wobbling skyscrapers crashing into each other helicopters flying through ga- i mean there's there's a lot of spectacle and if you see it on a big enough screen it, it is very much like um you know being there uh so yes i had awe and then i had awe at the dialogue but that was for different reasons awesome awful yeah no. and we get this different type of stories now there's all for the spectacle there's all for for me when I went to see The Phantom Menace, obviously in 99, I was seeing a new Star Wars film. that I had mm-hmm. awe pretty much all the way through that, although towards the end it was a different type of awe. But, uh, you know, just, just that moment hearing, you know, John Williams' score in the cinema, something new that I hadn't seen before, that was yeah. a magical cinematic moment for me. Possibly one of the greatest cinematic moments is moments moments welcome welcome Gollum. yes <laughs> precious uh yes one of the great best moments i've ever had at the cinema was <laughs> he did it again i did it intentionally okay. uh was in fact seeing that just because it's you know it's a bit special do you think we've been inured to awe by special effects i don't know that we have like gravity had a fair lot of awe in it i think you know where you were you know mm-hmm. gut clenching there's the spectacle of it the earth spinning around you know mm-hmm. There was a lot of that to it. Interstellar, for example, with, you know, not the docking scene for me, but the the scene where he's approaching uh, the singularity, the wormhole. Mm. I've only seen it once, please forgive me. But Gargantua. Yeah, and it's a bit, obviously, 2001-y, but that, that left me with a feeling of, mm. of, uh, of insignificance. And I do wonder sometimes if, that, if that's what awe on a cinematic scale means. It's not necessarily, for me, it's sometimes about a sense of scale, about a sense of, of realizing our place in this universe, which is why whenever I started thinking about this question, it kind of made me think back to something like, and this is going way back, I have felt awe since then, but something like um, Robert Zemeckis's Contact, mm. the beginning mm. of that, with, with the massive uh, zoom out from Earth all the way through our solar system into other galaxies, and you just get that, that idea that oh my god we're you know that to, to paraphrase Carl Sagan because I can't remember the quote you know we're on a pale blue dot you know and this is this is we're so tiny in the grand scheme of things or um, and to use another uh, example from uh, Contact there's an amazing shot where young Jodie Foster is running down a corridor and then suddenly Semekis reveals that we've been watching her reflection the entire time and I remember watching that going I don't know how he did that now I do because there's a making of but Mm. it's that when a filmmaker does a shot and I think it's more and more difficult to do uh, these days because we've pretty much the entire bag of tricks has been has been used up Mm. Uh, when a filmmaker does a shot that you genuinely go I don't know how they did that Mm. or I'm in I'm in awe of how they did that some of the stuff Gareth Evans did on the raid for example uh, left me in awe but effects, for them, for their very own sake, can do that. I mean, Terminator 2 was a film that filled me with awe because I'd yeah. never seen anything quite like what ILM did with the T-1000. So that was a, a hell of a thing. I know I'm going to get laughed at for this, but laugh yeah. There's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, may as well get out of the way. There's a shot in, in, <laughs> in Soy Cuba, which... <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> that was on the tip of my tongue. I was just going to say we'll that. Go, come, to, come to you in a second. What were you going to say? It, it was awesome. 
<laughs> but there is there are shots in that that I you know there's one that Paul Thomas Anderson directly references in in Boogie Nights where the, where the camera goes into the swimming pool. It's, it's an astonishing film from a camera work point of view, and there's so many shots. Are you just like how on earth do they do that? Especially in you know Cuba in nineteen in the mid nineteen sixties. I'm just gonna lock myself in this art house cul-de-sac and you guys no, just no, can't. Sure. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I don't know. I, there's no substitute for just getting an awful lot of people into the frame. I was watching mm. Waterloo again recently. It's a film I keep, keep coming back to. I've been doing it's a brilliant film, but there's just a shot where the camera pans across the battlefield and there's like 20,000 people, mm. like Russian army servicemen who are working as extras on Sergei Bondarak's film just there you know and, and i don't think cg can quite replace that mm. well it hasn't yet anyway you always um, get that feeling don't you um that you know for, for cg for crowd scenes these days you just have that feeling nagging away at you that they skimped somehow that they got maybe a hundred extras and then just duplicated them well they CG. do that's exactly what they do i went on a film set where they were doing a football stadium and they get they create say a hundred characters with different different attires and they just change the colors on the attires and they kind of just composite replicas around mm. them and i you know the human brain is that sophisticated and the uncanny valley is that hard to to span that i just wonder if you can't on a subconscious level detect that you're being duped which i wonder if that doesn't detract a little bit from the sense of awe and, and majesty of what you're seeing i wonder why a film like exodus or or despite all the modern technology and all of the technique doesn't have the same impact as watching a shot from Intolerance yeah. even though it's 100 years ago where there's all of these people they've got freaking elephants you know and uh, a, a, an incredible kind of um, panorama of, of things happening which are un, obviously uncomputer generated um, still has the ability to like take your breath away I think I didn't have that once in Noah. I don't know why. Yeah, why that's the case. It seems like they're doing. They must be doing something wrong if you're not coming away from from like Noah, feeling wow. You yeah. know, and you could be odd on a spiritual level as well, can't you? And I felt that yeah, uh, Exodus left me cold in that in that regard, which it probably should because you know I'm I'm not a believer, but yeah, yeah. the it's, music it's as well. I think the, the music when the music and the and the image come together as they did at um, certain moments in Interstellar with that great Hans Zimmer mm. score. Um, it does have the ability to kind of, you know... It elevates the soul. Elevate the soul. Mm. Free your mind. Come on, come on. And the rest will follow. <laughs> be colorblind. Don't be so shallow. I think I'm moving to Stereo MC's lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh -oh. good. It's good. Oh, well. There it was it on Vogue, wasn't it? What? Was it? Yeah. yeah. On Vogue. Free your mind by On Vogue. That you know that right doesn't, in, doesn't readers. speak wildly well of you. Why? Because it's not cool. I beg to differ. Right, should we, should we ask this one last question? Uh, this is from Carl from Wolves. If you were trapped in a lift, <laughs> which film star would you love or hate to be trapped with? I think there's only one answer to this, isn't there? I'd love to be trapped in an ATM vestibule with Jill Goodacre. <laughs> What's an ATM vestibule? We don't really have them here, do we? It's like, because we just have hole-in-the-wall cash machines. But uh, I suppose you do sometimes, don't you? Yeah. Those out-of-hours sections at the front of the banks where they have a few a few uh, cash points inside a little foyer and you need your car to get in. Where yeah. do you live? <laughs> where do I live? In, in, in London? Is this, you is do this see a, them from time to time. Yeah. Do you? Yeah. They're not a time vestibule. Time. They're not a yeah. thing. I mean, we don't call them an ATM vestibule. The only, the only answer for me is uh, uh, Bruce Willis. He's very adept at... Climbing out of lifts. Uh, although, have you you've been in a lift recently? I have I been imagine. in a lift. Yes. Um, I do wonder if Die Hard 
pointed out a flaw to lift manufacturers because I have rarely been in a lift recently where they have the, the panels to get up through the ceiling. Do you know what? It's so funny you say that. Yeah. Every time I get in a lift, I always look up and see so if there's an es- a way of getting out in the eventuality of some form of terrorist incident. Yeah. Is it American lifts that have them or is it just movie lifts? No lifts have them? have them, apart from movie lifts. Wasn't there a thing, uh, and I'm almost certain that I'm not making this up, where there was a thing that the Daily Mail was raging about at some point, maybe five or ten years ago, where there was a thing called lift surfing, where people would uh, climb up onto the roofs of lifts and then they'd sort of ride them as they fly up the shafts and it was terribly dangerous and they could lose limbs and whatnot. Well, you know, Amelia Estevez will will tell you that. Mm. These things are dangerous. Yes. Phil has... I've just just figured out what you're talking about. Oh, yeah, I saw that. That's horrible. It is horrible. Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. But then why do they have spikes at the top? It doesn't make a lot of sense from a lift manufacturer. <laughs> They're not well designed, are they? Yeah. I would have a word with that lift manufacturer. <laughs> yeah. Do we need that? Yeah, just in case there's some sort of espionage incident. Yeah. Maybe the rest of us needs to be spiked in the face. Wouldn't it be that John McClane would be a great person to be stuck in a lift with, but Bruce Willis maybe less so, uh, given what sort of uh, mincemeat he tends to make of journalists these days? I think it'd be all right. I think, I think it'd be okay. I think in a one-on-one situation, when you're both thrown together, brothers in arms... How long do we have? Although he might take all the air. He might just gulp it up so, <laughs> so he has it all for himself. <gasps> Great big rasping breast. And you're going, no, Bruce. <laughs> and you would die first. I think that's how it works. That's science. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's how it doesn't work. Um, the answer to this is Buzz from the Hudsucker Proxy. Okay. My name's Buzz. I got the fuzz. I make the elevator do what it does. <laughs> <laughs> he just talks and talks and talks and is just a hellish nightmare. You'd kill him. How you doing, buddy? Uh, you'd you'd want to kill him, wouldn't you? You'd want to kill him. Yeah, you would. You'd want to kill him. Going up, sir. <laughs> and droopy. Mm. Going down, sir. Um, wouldn't want to be dropped to live with him. No, probably not. Uh, or, yeah, but yeah, John McLean. Should we draw a line of that? No. Okay. If you want to have your question read out on the Emperor Podcast, do send them in via Twitter. We're at Emperor Magazine. Use the hashtag Emperor Podcast. Otherwise, we probably won't see it. Uh, you can email us, podcast at empireonline.com. And you can also Facebook us, where we are, Empire Mag Scene. Uh, okay, because this uh, podcast is sponsored by Squarespace, now there tends to be a science bit. That science bit tends to be read out by Mr. Ali Plum. So here it is. Yes, it's science bit time with your friendly local regular editor, Ali Plum. Squarespace, of course, is the fun and easy way of creating your own personal website, portfolio or online store. And guess what? You get a 10% off code with Empire. The word to put into the coupon box is Empire. Empire. E-M-P-I-R-E. It looks professionally designed no matter what your skill level. There's no coding required easy-to-use tools throughout. It's got state-of-the-art technology powering it to make sure it's secure and stable and not going to, like, fall over in the middle of the night. It's trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world. And it starts at just $8 a month. You can work it out. I think about £5 is about right a month. And you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. So, start your free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you do decide to sign up for Squarespace, remember, Empire's the offer code. 10% 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, as they say, build it beautiful. Thank you for listening not only to this science bit, but to the podcast generally. Please enjoy the rest of your regularly scheduled programme. Okay, now it's time for some lovely movie news. Let's start with news that hit the internet last night and had the internet, yay, going, way. this is fantastic news. Uh, the Tilda Swinton, Tilda Swinton, is in talks to join the cast of Doctor Strange as 
possibly a character called the Ancient One, who is Stephen Strange's. He's the Sorcerer Supreme. He's a if you don't know Doctor Strange, he's a he's a surgeon who uh, through an act of arrogance can no longer carry on in his job because his hands get all mangled up and so he decides to turn to mysticism and sorcery instead and become a better person and to do so he becomes uh, the pupil of the ancient one who is a uh, well an ancient being steeped in the mystic arts and uh, Tilda Swinton is in talks to play this this character in Scott Derrickson's movie which will be out next year uh, so on the surface what do we make of this gentlemen i think if you can get tilda swinton in your movie as the old saying goes yeah you should get tilda swinton in your movie that's kind of my philosophy on it i'm quite excited i'm quite interested in this one i have to say it sounds intriguing i think it's been well cast so i think benedict cumberbatch is a good pick mm-hmm. um and swinton yeah I, are you asking about the controversy of casting well, of casting yes a little bit a lady uh, as a man. There, there is that is, the major controversy? Well, no. The, the main controversy about this uh, uh, is that the ancient one is traditionally a, an Asian character. It is. Uh, it is a, a character very much inspired uh, by Oriental myths and legends. There, there are people who are up in arms about this. They're happy that the, the that Scott Derrickson and Marvel are showing vision and casting uh, a woman in the role and a brilliant actress in Tilda Swinton who will certainly bring an element of strangeness to the role. I think, um, and that she she feels ageless and timeless, doesn't she? And she's you know she's just phenomenal. And we all love Tilda Swinton, but equally there are people who are disappointed that the role has been whitewashed, so to speak. My my feeling about this is that Marvel may have looked at the character the way it's portrayed certain. In, in the uh, in the early days of uh, Doctor Strange in the sixties and seventies, and like the Mandarin in Iron Man, thought if we go down that route, then this could this could be a dreadful stereotype on the big screen. So maybe we'll we'll sidestep that and go in a completely different direction. But I can absolutely understand why people are are annoyed about it. But um, I can absolutely understand why people are, are annoyed about uh, the casting. At the same time. It's quite a difficult thing to mm. to sort of talk about mm. in a sense. It's a bit of a, a bit of a mind minefield, really. But I, it's such early days; it's a bit difficult to mm. to comment on it. Other than to say that Tilda Swinton is an absolutely fabulous actress, and yeah, like I say, any film that she's in is going to be enhanced by her presence. As far as the way that they're going to depict the characters is concerned, I've got literally no idea. I mean, I, I know a bit about this 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 uh, particular origin story and. Um, we'll see. I mean, the thing is that Hollywood is very focused on, you know, getting good portrayals of Asian characters into its films at the moment for obvious commercial reasons as much as anything. So I don't think that there's some nefarious kind of racial agenda at work here at all. I just think that they've they've, they've written the character that Tilda Swinton is a good fit for. Beyond that, it's pretty hard to say. Oh, who knows? He may have completely changed the origin so he doesn't, he no longer travels... To she could be from the Bronx. Yeah, she could be like the ancient one already. Yeah, it, it is a pretty well-worn archetype, though, isn't it? You can understand why they might want to sort of subvert it ever so slightly and do something different. Yeah, absolutely. You, you want to get you away know, from Fu Manchu, don't you? For a yeah. start. Yeah. I mean, you could. You, you know, someone on my Twitter feed yesterday said, "Well, why not just write? You know, keep it, keep it in the original character, the original idea, the original concept, but just write it better." Uh, it's easy to say something to to write it better. Um, mm. It becomes tricky in a portrayal. And I know that Marvel were terrified of, of doing the Mandarin as written on the page. 
because it is a, a, a dreadfully offensive uh, Chinese stereotype. Um, and I thought the way that they came up to circumvent it in, in Iron Man 3 was, was, was pretty genius, to be honest. But, you know, we shall see. We shall see. Uh, but I, like I say, all four Tilda Swinton being in more movies. Um, just a, a very quick one to get away from comic book stuff for a little bit. Uh, the Not the entire lineup, I believe, Phil, for the Edinburgh Film Festival has been announced. Edinburgh International Film Festival, or the That's e- correct. EF, if you prefer. EF. Um, is uh, has announced its lineup. It kicks off on June the seventeenth, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a it's a it's a fun and very movie loving film festival. And it's kicking off with Robert Carlyle's directorial debut, which is a movie called The Legend of Barney Thompson. It's billed as a darkly comic thriller that also features Emma Thompson and Ray Winston. Um, so a gathering of pals there. That's a good one. Um, Asif Kapadia's Amy, a film that I've seen twice, uh, is absolutely fabulous, and that will also be showing there. I would expect Asif Kapadia to be there. He's just wrapped his uh, his latest feature film, so he's going to be taking time out from post-production, I imagine, to make a visit. Arnie won't be there, but his zombie drama Maggie will. Mm-hmm. There's The D-Train with James Marsden and Jack Black. That's a comedy. And then there's a Brian Wilson biopic, Love and Mercy, and Last Days in the Desert with Scotsman Ewan McGregor. So there's a few there. Head to the website, um, the name of the address of which I don't have to hand, but I imagine you can Google it. <laughs> How's that for service? It's edfilmfest.org.uk. That's exactly right, uh, that one. Or comic book news, everyone would be delighted to know. Uh, Chris Pine, who somehow somehow has managed to avoid starring in the comic book movie, uh, is apparently in talks to play Mi- Mr. Wonder Woman, uh, Steve Trevor. That's the worst... Oh, sorry. <laughs> Carry on. That's the worst what? It's just the worst name the for worst anyone. Name. Anything. I'm Steve Trevor. I'd almost prefer Trevor Steve. No. No? No. I don't know. Okay. I, you know Tell no. me about Steve Trevor. I don't know much about Wonder Woman, I'll be honest with you. We need Helen here for this because she, she knows the character. She ran, dressed as Wonder Woman in the London Marathon, for God's sake. Um, There's a bit but, of a Captain America scenario romance between Steve, Mr. Trevor. Yes. Colonel He's a military guy, isn't he? He's a military yes. intelligence guy. Crashed lands in the Second World War. Yes. In the jungle, meets the will-be Wonder Woman. They have a yes. little bit of a, they have a bit of a Bear Grylls Love Island type <laughs> romance, and then that follows through when she moves back to the US. Yes. And then they I think date. You've nailed it. I think you've absolutely they nailed go out, it. They date for a while. Yes. And then he wants to see other people. Mm-hmm. And then. Starts tindering. Yes, it all gets a bit out of control. The uh-huh. last, I don't know. Sounds I'm good. Sounds good. At this point. Yeah, no, it's fine. They all sounded good to me. Uh, but Chris Pine. Chris Pine. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Chris Pine. Chris Pine as yeah. as uh, Steve Trevor would indicate that it's a character that has a little bit more oomph than you might imagine. Yeah, yeah. Chris Pine's a good. I mean, he's a solid, dependable yeah. American type guy, isn't he? Yeah. You know, if you were going to cast Captain America again, you might talk to Chris Pine's people. You might look at Chris Pine. I'm sure they you looked at him the first time. I'm yeah. sure they, you know, I'm sure Marvel were aware of him at the time. Yep. But, Although uh, you and I would both be fans of having... Dan Stevens. Exactly Empire, right. Empire Spirit Animal. The Empire Animal. Spirit Animal in any of these roles. I, Absolutely. I, yeah. But well, I think one of the things is that maybe also they're running out of heroes. So if you look at the uh, the DC heroes who've been announced, so Batman's taken, Superman's taken, Flash is taken, Aquaman's taken. Um, so that leaves of their their big ones. Who's it leave? It leaves uh, Martian Manhunter. It leaves Green Lantern. Well, yeah, he'd be a good Green Lantern, a good rebooted Green Lantern, wouldn't he? Wouldn't he? Who are we talking about? Dan Stevens? No, Chris Pine. Oh yeah. 
And in terms, of, job. in terms of the Marvel stuff, there's who's left of the big heroes? Like, you know, Black Bolt from Inhumans. It's pretty much pretty much everyone's done and dusted. Name more the U boat captain. That's him. <laughs> Chris Pine and his tighty greenies. So maybe this is you know maybe this is his way of, of doing a, a superhero film without actually having to yes. wear a silly costume. Who knows? But uh, decent casting. Let's show off the comic books and let's talk serious films for a minute. Uh, let's talk video games. Uh, <laughs> One of the most interesting things to come out of Cannes, I thought, was that they're doing, uh, or rather they picked up the adaptation for It Came From The Desert. Uh-huh. Now, did oh, either wow. of you, uh, there we go, did either of you own an Amiga? Yes. Yeah. It Came From The Desert. It was 19, I want to say, 1989, somewhere around that time. Uh, I don't want to uh, date myself, but yeah. It was a B-movie game, uh, famous, I think, mostly for the fact that you could only play it if you bought the half-meg RAM extension for your, uh, for your Amiga. It was quite a demanding game. Really? Yeah. I yeah. bought my Amiga secondhand, and it came yeah, but it with might it. have come with one. It, it might, might have been have one of the later yeah. Amigas. Wow! And now we've gone into nerd territory. But I, I've, I was obsessed with this game for a period of time. Uh, it was primarily concerned driving around this desert town, talking to people, occasionally being ambushed by giant ants, and trying to shoot off their antennae before they killed you. That's pretty much it. Yeah, uh, but there was also a, there was like a it's like an expansion more than a sequel called Ant Heads, which was literally just that, where the people you spoke to had ant heads. <laughs> I don't remember that. That's absolutely true. I do not um, remember. That. This is um, being directed by Marco uh, Macalarco, and uh, it's it's an odd thing to adapt, quite frankly. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm really excited to see it, but the game itself uh, is kind of a it's essentially a rip off of, of of Gordon Douglas's um, 50s B movie Them. And it strikes me that wouldn't they have almost been better off remaking them than doing an adaptation of It Came From The Desert? Unless yeah. they want the ant heads, which is entirely possible. Uh, it, yeah, entirely possible. I remember there being a knife fight section of the game and uh, like a, a, a bit where you got into a, a game of chicken with yes, the local the car bully. Chase, that's right. And I remember... Um, All I, the 50 I, strokes were there. Yeah, I was terrible at games back then as I am now, so I don't think I ever completed it. I'm sure you completed it in like an afternoon or something and you just... While you were Rick Wakeman in it on a different computer, you were probably completing two games at the same time on two different monitors. But that was exactly what I was yeah, doing. I was just lucky to get my disc into the drive. The engine, the whole, the whole, <laughs> not a metaphor. Yeah, the but. whole point of the game was you had to find the ant nest. At which point you ran around with sort of sticks of dynamite trying to blow them up and find the queen and kill the queen. Don't think I ever got that far. No. Yeah, that's tricky. how bad I am at games. Yeah. Uh, FIFA's the only game I can do, and even now that's been tainted by corruption, so I can't, I can't play that now without thinking about people taking backhands. <laughs> FIFA 2007, Dawn Raid comes and takes it away from you. I mean, really, EA Sports, it's in prison. <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, thought, Helen, our office lawyer, isn't here today. But, uh, well, I think that's all. That's all, pretty much. It's a, a all matter of record. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yes, that thing. What he said. Where's the lawyer? Quick, I press object. the green button. I object. <laughs> um, you Shock. mentioned Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. Sustained. But Helen's not here, so we don't have to talk about it. No, we want to talk about it because it's exciting. And um, they are looking to cast someone alongside Eddie, some people alongside Eddie Redmayne. But it's at the kind of, it's at the kind of. Uh, uh, this is the news. They're looking to cast people. Yeah, they've that's, got, well, they've that's got, astonishing. I know it's a bit vague. So not isn't actually it? Fantastic Beast. <laughs> Good. Not Good. the Beast. The people. Saoirse Ronan, Dakota Fanning, Lily Simmons from True Detective, and Alison Sudel from Transparent um, are all in the running for one part. And then you've got people like Kate Upton, Catherine Wardston, who was so good in Inherent Vice, yeah. Elizabeth Debicki from The Great Gatsby, and a number of others. But they haven't cast them yet. So why don't we just tell people when they have? Okay. Okay. Thanks, everyone, for your strange, time. Strange, strange for the PSA. Uh, and oh, got in, one more. Oh. Yeah, this is big. 
There's no Steve Jobs news this week. Okay. Well. But we do have... <laughs> chips news. I love which chips. Which I haven't actually read yet, but here it is. <laughs> Vincent D'Onofrio... <laughs> Let's join Phil in his voyage of discovery as he finds out more about this new story. Stand by your radios. Peter O'Hanrahan, Hanrahan, going on here. Yes, you've dropped the news, Peter. Do you have the German Chancellor with you? What's he saying? Das ist nicht. You don't speak German, do you? Okay, stand by your radios. I'm going to just quickly read this. Stand by your radios? <laughs> How do you think people are listening to this? I don't know. On are you aware of what a podcast a is? Podcast? Of course I know what a podcast is. <laughs> stand by your podcasts. Um, Vincent Orfeo is recruited. He's going to be the villain of Chips. He's not going to be the villain. <laughs> What's that mean? He's going to be chips. the villain of Chips. He's going to be the villain of Chips. <laughs> he's going to storm into every McDonald's and squash them flat. What? Arch, yes, he's going to team yeah. up with the Hamburglar. Uh, <laughs> I needed to have read this at Phil, least five minutes earlier. While I do applaud chips and I hate to piss all over yours, this mm. is dreadful. Oh, come I, on, this is top stuff. I so can anyway. imagine Vincent D'Onofrio with chips in both hands somehow. I just like gorging on chips. Can anyone? <laughs> Maybe uh, that's just uh, me personally. I, I don't want to disrespect this. I grew up with chips. California Highway, I was raised highway by chips. Patrol. I don't know what the S stands for. Highway Patrol. <laughs> What's the S stand for? Service? I don't know. Probably. Yeah. The R is uh, erroneous. Ponch and John Baker, they've been cast, and, and here comes Vincent D'Onofrio. We know that he's a good villain. Mm-hmm. He can do other things. He's, uh, he's, he's a not, super villain. He's not a bad guy, as you pointed out to me, in The Magnificent Seven, a film about which I'm yeah. enormously excited. I'm excited about that as well, actually. I'm as not... excited about that as you are as excited about Steve Jobs. I'm excited about Magnificent Seven, as excited as you are about Steve Jobs. But I'm excited about Steve Jobs, so it kind of balances itself out. It's hard to say out, who's really. more excited about this. Um, and we have, we've got through this news section, we don't have a lot of time left. Uh, we've got through this news section without talking about the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen reboot, which we're all very excited about. Um, so, uh, also, to talk about this week very, very quickly, in self-serving, um, shameless plug news is that there's a new issue of Empire out on the newsstands and available digitally as well. Jim, but was it available on Android? It is on Android. It is fully interactive on Android. It's also, I believe, on the Amazon store as well now. Well, there we go. This month on the cover is Ant-Man, Marvel's Ant-Man. Nick DeSimlian had full, unfettered access to that movie. He was on set in Atlanta. He lived inside Michael Douglas for about three months um, because he was shrunken down to the size Mm. of an ant. I don't actually mean to say anything else um, and he got loads of great stuff and so that's a fantastic cover feature and there's also lots of other stuff there about some of the superhero stuff coming up over the next few years we also have a, a big interview with Channing Tatum we have a very funny feature on uh, the Entourage Boys where they've been reunited because apparently they're doing some sort of movie together and uh, there's a feature on The Man From Uncle there's a great uh, feature on Rick Baker and the amazing uh, props and animatronic stuff that he has done he's he's uh, putting a lot of his stuff up for auction um, later on I think later on this month actually so and, if you're looking uh, to furnish your home this is the opportunity yeah and that's a wonderful photograph uh, that's, that's a wonderful <laughs> photograph article which you can read in your magazine so that's all good but I, I guess one of the, the big bits of news as well this month is that Empire has been redesigned for the first time in three and a half years our new editor uh, Morgan Reese has uh, given it a lick of paint and uh, spruced it up 
and changed a lot of stuff and it all looks very, very lovely. Uh, but we'd obviously love to know what you think about it. Um, so do check it out and let us know via Twitter or via email. Uh, in my section, the slate, uh, features lots of great stuff. There's uh, there's safe history reports from The the Martian. There's chats with Asif Kapadia about uh, the Amy Winehouse documentary, Amy, Antoine Foucault about Southpaw, all sorts of lovely stuff in there as well. Some new regulars, some old regulars with a, with a new look. Uh, Peter Serafinovich, this one's Pine of Milk. All the usual reviews and news and all that sort of stuff. And that's available to buy now. All good and evil news agents. Right, uh, our guest this week has been on the podcast before uh, three times to be precise, four if you count the Three Cornettos spoiler special, but he's been terribly polite every single time. It is of course the one and only Simon Pegg who stars in this week's Britcom Man Up as a divorcee looking for love and possibly finding it I'm not giving away any spoilers in the shape of Lake Bell. Phil and I spoke to Mr. Pegg this week about a great many things, including his recent misconstrued attack, I'm using air quotes there, on the infantilization of geek culture, which then led geek culture to strike back at him, and then he strike, struck back at geek culture, and it all kicked off, and it was all fine. Everyone's friends now. We're all good. Uh, but we talked about that, and we also talked about some of the key sequences of Man Up, including a dance sequence set to the strains of Duran Duran's the reflex. So now you're up to speed. Enjoy the interview. We're delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast for a record-breaking <laughs> fourth time. I think it is. Yeah, <laughs> I think the fourth time. By wait, did you introduce uh, by Simon Pegg? How are you, sir? I'm you very okay? well. Very excited to be here on the fourth time. Fourth time. Um, <laughs> now you said to me that uh, I should bring you a plaque. I did. For your fourth time. I haven't brought you a plaque. Damn it. I have, however, brought you a Stormtrooper mug. That Get was, off. That was sitting on my desk. <laughs> quite frankly. I always but, get uh, some bit of tap from the Empire <laughs> office, and quite frankly, I love but it. My uh, my mouth has never touched it, so <laughs> will, you, will you accept it? I, listen, I'm always okay. up for a Star Wars mug. <laughs> I am a Star Wars mug. How many do you have? Uh, I have I have got the original poster, the one, and I've got a Death Starbucks. <laughs> and uh, which is the Starbucks logo, but it's the Death Star. Amazing. Yeah. Do you have a man cave? Uh, I have a. That was the sound of me drinking. I always try and recreate the uh, Kurt Russell, <laughs> uh, John Carpenter commentary on the thing. I need some ice. Let's clink the glasses. I have a sort of place where I go to watch films, and yeah. uh, it is. It does have the odd helmet in there. Uh, um, Stormtrooper, Mandalorian, Darth Vader. Yes, a couple of toys hanging around. Okay, so you you haven't burned it after you declared war on geekdom. Uh, no, <laughs> the other week I declared war on clickbait them. I think. Uh, no, not at all. Not at all. And. Um, and that was a that was a, a saga which has now neatly been closed in my blog. <laughs> <laughs> Horrendous! I've never felt so misunderstood and reduced yeah. to kind of uh, yeah. Sometimes it feels like you talk to yourself and someone around the you, I, you know. I was in an interview in my house and and that rarely happens. It was a, so it was an interview I was quite comfortable with, just sort of chatting, very conversational. And sometimes you say to yourself, oh, I don't know, maybe it's all that, maybe it's this, maybe. And then someone on the other side of the earth goes, what did you fucking say? And it's like, well, I had nothing. I was just I had a half-formed idea. I was kind of <laughs> workshopping some kind of theory. It was two different things. You know, it came off as uh, I hate everything I, think I <laughs> thought I loved. It just wasn't true. And it was kind of, uh, I wound up feeling a bit bruised by it all. It, it just felt kind of unreasonable. It was interesting watching people deliberately misconstrue what you were saying that day, which just seems to be happening a lot these days. It on. happens all the time on yeah. the internet. It's kind of, people love it. It's sort of, uh, it feels like something people relish, you know, indignation. Mm. Pointless indignation. The mob mentality. <laughs> 
It's the Radio Times for you, I think. <laughs> it is the Radio Times. Ferocious. Fuck them. <laughs> and there's another problem on that. <laughs> The following week, an apology piece to the Radio <laughs> Times. Well, it's always been a big part of my life growing up. <laughs> um, but um, but uh, man up to... Uh, I only get it at Christmas, to be honest. <laughs> yes, that's only for the picture of Father Christmas on the front. And now you can circle the films that you're in as well, yeah. <laughs> which is good. Um, but man up's out this week. Um, I was on set, uh, as were you, in fact, uh, last February. So yeah. it's, it's been a while. Do you need your memory refreshed about? Because we were thinking, we were talking about this in the office. Yeah. Because it, it, it seems to be sometimes uh, quite a long time between filming something and talking about it. It would be Always. like if someone asked us to promote now issue three hundred of yes. Empire, we wouldn't remember it. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. So is it difficult for you to dread, you know, to, to you know to go back and dredge up memories? Well, obviously, there's a record of what you did, which is <laughs> yes. the film itself, which is in, enables you to kind of like have some kind of um, recall. Uh, it's interesting because I'm just about to start promotion for Mission Impossible Rogue Nation and I only just finished shooting that. So this is the first time <laughs> ever that the turnaround has been so quick that, you know, the shooting experience is, is barely left my short-term memory before yeah. I'm actually on the road promoting it. But yes, Man Up was the beginning of 2014, mm-hmm. so it was a long time ago. You just have to kind of get in the mode for it when you, when you come to promote a movie. You might have made... I mean, I have. I've made... Three films since. Wow. Four films since I made Man Up. Wow. And so it's kind of, uh, you know, you just have to go back in the filing cabinet of your mind and kind of recall the experience of, uh, of making it. So you can come up with some hilarious onset stories. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, can you tell us about the uh, Duran Duran reflex I can't remember. dance? <laughs> <laughs> oh. yes, Is that, how, did you put that, how did you put that together? Well, that was down to a... A, a great sort of uh, a collaborator of, of, from the Cornetto uh, era, which was Litzer Bixler, who's a choreographer who choreographed a lot of the zombies in Shaun of the Dead. Uh, she choreographed Edgar's video for the Blue Tones. Uh, she worked with us on The World's End. She did all the simultaneous movement in The World's End. She um, came aboard and devised this kind of like, it was supposed to be like a genetically implanted 80s dance that we all have in us somewhere that is just ready to come out <laughs> if the right tune comes on. And the whole idea in that moment is that Jack and Nancy are having this row, but somehow managing to kind of like pull off this coordinated routine, which they somehow both know. So we basically had to learn this dance routine and then kind of unlearn it and make it as scrappy as we could and then act at the same time. So it was a bit sort of like, you know, pat your head and rub your tummy kind of stuff. <laughs> it was fun, though. It was really good. We, we, you know, we were at the da- London dance studios, you know, in leg warmers, sort of learning how to do it. And a lot of, pro, a lot of uh, uh, preparation went into it. You're expecting some feedback from Duran Duran's army, dormant army of fans. Dormant army? <laughs> well, they're out there. So they're from Game of Thrones. <laughs> a little bit. The dormant <laughs> army is close. If you've uh, seen the video to Wild Boys, you're not too far <laughs> off the mark. Eric Fellner produced that. Is who, that right? Yeah, Eric Fellner, who uh, uh, obviously is one of our producers on all, all the Cornetto movies, uh, was involved in Wild Boys. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, that was so far ahead of its time. I know, absolutely. <laughs> that r- robotic head and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's like Fury Road before It was Fury like Road. Fury Road. Yeah. My God. Um, or rather, it was like the first Mad Maxes, which is mm. what it was really like. Um, yes. Yeah, I, I, I'd hope they'd see it as the, the tribute that it actually is. The, the Reflex is one of those songs that, for me at the time, when I was a sort of nascent sort of indie kid, rejected completely, but secretly really loved. Now, as a grown-up 45-year-old, I can say, no, it's a brilliant song, and I've always loved it. The orchestration, particularly in the chorus, is incredibly rousing. So, uh, yeah, big up the Giranis. <laughs> Same goes for White Snake. 
Wow, wow. Mr. Coverdale uh, was an extraordinary... Um, I wrote him a letter because we really wanted the song, you know, because it's such a kind of awesome power track, you know, particularly for a grand gesture. It is, it is a tune and a half. And um, Tess had written it into the script. And it, it's often a dangerous thing if you write songs into scripts yeah. because you can be disappointed. It's happened to me before. And Edgar and I do it a lot. You know, we'll, we'll aim for songs. Sometimes you don't get them. Uh, Did that happen on The World's End? <laughs> Uh, no, I think we pretty much got everything we wanted for The World's End. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we did. But it, 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 it doesn't always happen that way. You Sometimes, you know, you'll write, mm. this song happens and it doesn't. And you, you write it to that piece of music as well. So the whole thing is almost choreographed in your yeah. head. And then suddenly you don't get the music and it's uh, it can be a big disappointment. But Tess had kind of like was absolutely certain she wanted Here I Go Again. And we really wanted it. And... So I wrote to David Coverdale and just sort of said, please, can we use this? Do you mind? And he was absolutely brilliant and lovely and was well up for it. So, yeah, it's it's another one of those tunes that, you know, you say, oh, it's a guilty pleasure. It's not. It's just a straight out pleasure. <laughs> uh, Naira Park, the producer of this movie, um, told me that you said yes to the script within about an hour or something like that. Yeah, we were yeah. filming The World's End, actually, in, mm. in East London. And uh, I was staying at like a... A hotel nearby it was the big sinkhole that we that the film climaxes in and uh that's a disgusting sentence um <laughs> and uh i was i she gave me the script said read this it was written for big talk yeah um and so i went back to my hotel and i had nothing to do but read the script and and she'd already said it was shooting in london which was a big plus for me because it went you know close to family that's great if I even like this a little bit, I'll probably say yes, because I'd been away the previous year a lot and I'd you know, missed home. But I started reading it and suddenly I'd finished reading it. And that's always a really good sign with the script because generally about 10 pages in, you'll start thinking, OK, do I like this or don't I? If you don't even stop to think that, you know you're reading a good script. Mm. And Tess's script was so sort of relentlessly dynamic and, and had such propulsion that it, by the end of it, I thought, wow, this could be really fun. And if Naira thinks that I can play this character then why not do it so I was the first person to sort of sign up really and then we started looking for our director and for our Nancy especially it's interesting because uh, I imagine uh, Jack doesn't appear until what page 10 or 11 something like that 10 and so, a half 10 and a half yeah did you do you count yes. do you make notes on your iPad yeah <laughs> right. Where, I'm not in this yet what the hell is this <laughs> throw it across the room yeah. did you consider the part of Nancy at first I did think it must be Nancy I'm reading for right I mean surely what other character is there other than Nancy I can't be no I, I liked it because it was it wasn't my it's not my film you know it's not Jack's film it's Nancy's film and I really I really liked the character I really liked Tess's voice I really liked the fact that she managed to write a very very smart male character which was you know honest and raw and not a caricature at the same time you know I, th- I, th- I felt like it was it just had a degree of truth in it which I found very appealing and I like the idea of being in a film that was written by a woman and was about a woman you know and uh, you, you, you've, you've just finished uh, you definitely just finished Rogue Nation <laughs> I think so <laughs> I was doing a little bit of ADR for it yesterday um, yeah absolutely um, that was an extraordinary shoot that was a eight month shoot and uh, as opposed to the six weeks that it took to shoot Man Up yeah um, but um, never not enormous fun yeah I can, I can imagine it was but I also imagine uh, were you on set the day that the news uh, broke that it was being brought forward by five months because yes yeah well, what was that what was the day like <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was like everybody went what <laughs> quick hurry up uh, no it was it, I, I read about it I think online and, and, and went in the next day and was like 
to McHugh, I was like, uh, Chris, is this true? <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think when when Alec Baldwin uh, Alec Baldwin came back over to the UK to shoot some stuff, and um, <laughs> and said to Chris. Uh, I hear it's in July now. Is that to stop you from shooting? <laughs> Which was a, 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 a very alecky thing to say. Um, yeah, we, we were, you know, Paramount were really happy with it and they wanted it to be a summer film. And, mm. and I feel like, uh, you know, Chris was well up for the challenge of... He, Chris edits so quickly and he's, he's got such a, 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 a kind of certain vision that I think it's easy for him to kind of edit to that. Mm. So... Um, yeah, it's exciting. I've never, I've never been involved with a film that's turned around so quickly. The trailer looks pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. Um, we know that it's about the syndicate, who are billed as an anti-IMF. Yeah. Does that mean that there's an anti-Benji Dunn out there somewhere? Yeah, it's like that episode Just, of Star Trek when there's, a, there's me with a kind of scar and an eye patch. <laughs> uh, and you're playing both parts. I, I play both parts. Just one slightly eviler than the other. Yeah, one is not so good at IT. <laughs> and that's me, that's the good one. Dungy Ben. <laughs> Dungy Ben, yeah. In terms of the franchise, it's obviously each film's had its own director mm. and it started with Brian De Palma with something that was a bit Hitchcock-y and a yeah. kind of an old-fashioned thriller. And it's, it's, do, you, do you feel that evolution you've been in? This is the third Mission Impossible film you've been in. Yeah. It feels like it's becoming more of a straight action movie. Yeah, but I don't. I think that this film, Rogue Nation, probably has more in common with uh, the first Mission Impossible than it does with the second Mission Impossible. I feel like Chris has embraced every iteration of this story and kind of you know, channeled it into this one in a way that acknowledges its forebears you know and and it, it has evolved but I, I i think that the the word that was said the most on the set of this movie was always character you know i mean what we've seen in the trailer has been the stuff to wake up the potential audience you know tom on the plane all that kind of stuff all the big action set pieces which you put into a trailer um in order to sort of sell the film but i think there's a hell of a lot going on in this movie about the the interpersonal dynamics of of who Ethan is and his relationship with his teammates and there's some really lovely small stuff in there which you can't really put in a trailer because it won't really read in a you know two minutes and 18 seconds so um I, f I feel like this film is going to be everything in that respect and that it will have those giant set pieces but at the same time there'll be uh really dynamic kind of character beats which will really draw people in and you get to go in disguise Finally, from the uh, from the trailer, you yeah. do see me getting a mask pulled off. I won't say anything about that. <laughs> Except if it's not like Mission Impossible Two, there's no doves, because I'm assuming doves would have made a mess of Tom Cruise in that particular plane sequence. Doves, yeah, there yeah. one dove smacks him right in the head. That would have been a great little reference to John Woo. He just gets <laughs> smacked with a dove in the face. <laughs> Amazing. Um, you say that uh, you haven't been involved with the film uh, with that quick a turnaround mm. before, but I guess. Star Trek Beyond is going to be along similar lines. It's 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 quite fast. Yeah, I guess so. And and that that will be obviously we shoot that we start shooting that in about four weeks time, and then um, I, I figure we'll be wrapped by end of October, and then it will be out in the summer. So yeah, it's going to be it's going to be speedy. You know, it, it's uh, it's modern filmmaking. I guess this is obviously important that we get it to come out in 2016 because it's the 50th anniversary and. Um, so we're just striving at the moment to to you know get a script that's um, that's shootable. Uh, where are you now? Uh, page eighty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, we're just you know we, we've written a draft and now we're just refining that draft as you would in in any normal writing situation. It's just that it's a very sped up process. You know things are being built 
as they're written rather than you know you, it wasn't a script that was delivered and then pre-produced it's being pre-produced as it's being written which is you know <laughs> scary how tempted were you to write opening page interior enterprise day slash night whatever it is Scotty comes in and finds everyone dead uh, well, have I guess read it? The, yeah, I have read it actually. Uh, this is my movie now. I guess, guys, I might as well one, take over one, the Enterprise. One thing, I've, one thing I've, <laughs> I've a really interesting thing about writing this film has been when you write an establishing, uh, you know, when you write on final draft or whatever, you mm. you start a, a scene heading is, you know, exterior or interior, somewhere, day or night. So you you know you're basically letting the production know what time of day it's happening. What do you, I don't know what to do when it's in space. Whether it's night or day or what, or I mean, it's exterior, sure. So it's exterior. You know, say you have a ship of a spaceship. Yeah, that's not a spoiler. It's obviously it's going to be in Star Trek. Hang on, on, let me tweet that. What do you do? Is it day? Is it night? I don't know. Yeah. So you haven't solved it yet? No. You just generally just say day. (laughs) I also to be great to question mark. I always wanted to write a, a, a thing called Star Trek Night Shift. Which is the other crew that that come on when everyone else goes to sleep? Because you know they're not obviously they've got to go to bed at some point. Yeah. So I have this you know about six o'clock in the evening. Kirk, Ahura, uh, Chekhov, uh, Spock, and uh, and Sulu they all leave the bridge, and this second crew come on and they all sit down and go, "All right, what are we doing?" And they're like, they're not as good, and they're sort of a bit kind of they're a bit lazy. They got the night shift. They get bored a lot. They don't get into as many adventures. I just think it'd be great. There's slight nudity. Slight nudity. I imagine it'd be slight nudity. A lot of snacking. <laughs> Star Trek night shift. A lot of moobs. <laughs> yeah. Because you wouldn't, you wouldn't keep up with, you, with your fitness you if wouldn't you were be on as night fit. shift. You wouldn't be as fit as Kirk. <laughs> was that your original pitch? <laughs> yes. For Star Trek night shift. It was all about this kind of, you know, secondary sub crew. I'd be all over that. Uh, <laughs> That would be amazing, but uh, but without giving anything away, obviously, uh, you know, you you are part of the cast as well. Mm. So does that change how you write for Scotty? Um, I find it easy to write for Scotty because I know his voice, you know, and um, so in the scenes when I um, when that character is involved, uh, I feel a little bit more sort of um, you come a little easier, maybe. But mm. you know, this this is something that's it's a very collaborative venture, the whole thing, and and. And despite what was said last week or taken completely out of context and completely misconstrued, this is going to be a very, this is going to be Star Trek and a very Star Trekky Star Trek in that it's going to embody everything that has made this story great over the last 50 years. And um, the, the idea of it not being, of the idea of it being anything else um, is, uh, is just not on the table. The 50th thing, does that hang over it in the way that Skyfall had the Bond Anniversary. The, I mean, you've, you talked about that being slightly yeah. misconstrued. Nods, specific nods to. to I don't. To well, history. I don't. You see, uh, the vast majority of people out there who go and see this movie probably don't know and mm. don't care that it's the fiftieth anniversary. Uh, I do, and I both know and care. And I think a lot of people who love Star Trek will also know and care. Mm. Just for, for those people, and for for the for the sake of the story itself, we want it to be worthy of 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 a worthy addition to this sort of uh, story. Uh, so it's it's more important to me than it is, or to us than it is to, you know, for some kind of grand fanfare that this is the, you know, because ultimately a, a lot of a lot of the cinema going public just want to go and see it as a movie. They aren't necessarily, mm. you know, uh, uh, card carrying Star Trek fans, but they do love the story. So um, it's just about making it. It's it's a special anniversary for us, I think. Uh, awesome, Simon. Thank you so much indeed. Thanks, man. Fourth time. Fourth time. Fourth time. Give me my mug. <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. It's in my bag. <laughs> Wait a second. 
Here it is. Yay. Yay. <laughs> oh, it's like a coffee cup. Look at that. Look at that. Smart. Look at that. Lovely. Honestly, my mouth has not touched that. Thank you very much. Other bits have. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Just fill that in there and then make it into a awesome. Force Awakens one. Yeah. Always good to have the Pegatron on the podcast, and hopefully he'll be back. He's got tons of films out this year, so I'm sure he'll be back at a later date. Uh, let's start the reviews section of the podcast with Man Up, Phil Cat. Yay. Well, I I really enjoyed this movie. I have to say, I think I think um, that, that there's been a lot of talk about the fact that there haven't been very many rom-coms and that the, the genre has become a bit moribund. And it's really nice to see a, a sort of an unashamedly old-fashioned style rom-com on the screen. You know, it's not too caught up in the technology of dating and all that stuff. It's an old-fashioned setup. It's two people that are supposed to be having a blind date, although the meet-cute goes a bit strange because Lake Bell's character is given a book, which is a kind of uh, device. Yes, with which to meet Simon Pegg's character, but it's actually obviously not her that Simon Pegg is expecting. Yes, he's meant to meet someone under the clock at Waterloo, and that someone's meant to be clutching a particular self-help book, and he meets Lake Bell, who's clutching, say, it's self-help book, but for a completely different reason, and he presumes she's his blind date, and she decides to go along with it. Gosh, you explained that so much better than me. So that's the meet-cute at Waterloo (laughs) Station. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it goes from there and there's obviously an element of subterfuge and, and lies and a, a tissue of lies but it's all fun to start with and then something else begins to blossom between the two of them mm-hmm. and they've got lovely chemistry I think this is a fantastic vehicle for Lake Bell's one of Lake Bell's talents um, if you heard her on the podcast last week um, she's she's really a lot of fun mm. she's fantastic I mean it's been said a lot but her accent in this is so fantastically it's not just a good English accent, it's a really specifically regional accent, which lends it, you know, a, an authenticity. I think where this film falls down a little bit is in the Rory Kinnear character, potentially. He plays the kind of psychotically deranged ex-boyfriend who is a lot broader than the rest of the film around him. For someone that's been in the dating arena in their 30s, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things here that you can really relate to about, you know, the sort of the kind of politics and the weirdnesses of going out on dates and, and how it all kind of pans out. And then suddenly you've got this kind of crash-bang-wallop, slightly showy, slightly silly carry-on style performance. And I think Rory Kinn is really funny. I didn't know he yeah. could do comedy. He's really... No you didn't know he could do comedy? Oh, well, I didn't do know he could do... you not watch Count Arthur Strong? I haven't actually he's seen that. He's so no, funny. He's is a straight he? guy now, but he's so funny now. And he was really yeah. good last year in Cuban Fury. So he's almost like... No, I haven't seen him in those. But he's yeah. very, very, very good in this. I wouldn't want to disrespect his performance. I just think it belongs in a slightly different movie. And I think it slightly drains the things that Simon Pegg and Lake Bell are doing so well of some of their kind of inner potency, I guess. The poignant... Because there is a poignant heart to this film. Yeah, it does have is. a lot of heart. And... Uh, and you, you kind of have to go with it. It's got a lot of fun stuff in it. Um, it's not perfect film by any means, but but I enjoyed it. And I think people have it, people will be able to relate to a lot of the sort of a lot of the things it has to say about modern dating. Um, mm. And it's also very silly. Yeah, it is. It's well written and very well acted, and the, the, the two leads have got a lot of chemistry together. Um, it's been a while, I think, since we had a really really nice funny and because it's by big talk the guys who did Shaun the dead and all those movies it's earthy as well it has a nice it's 15 rated doesn't hold back and uh i like it It feels very real it feels like a very lived in movie and uh like i say, i could watch peg and bell uh banter until the cows come home i think it's a uh, probably the best richard curtis film you'll see this year and i mean that as a compliment to tess morris who wrote it and everyone involved yeah absolutely Absolutely. Three stars in for Man Up, which, as you always say in the podcast, is a recommendation. And speaking of recommendations, here's a recommendation for San Andreas, in which The Rock tries manfully to stop 
California from collapsing around his ears as uh, the big one strikes. He does indeed. This is named, in fact, after the San Andreas Fault, which runs under California. Uh, and it is basically an earthquake movie. Um, as I said earlier, this this is... It's not a great film, but it does bring a little bit of awe. Uh, there's some... I think Dan in the review refers to it sort of taking the California landscape and sort of fluffing it out like a giant duvet. And that's that's essentially what the effects are. The whole ground is rippling, skyscrapers are toppling, buildings are falling down, football stadiums are disintegrating. Uh, from an effects point of view, it really is staggering. I mean, it's very, very real and very, very terrifying. And you do find yourself with this goofy grin just thinking, this is nuts. Um, you and, sicko. Are and you then taking... people speak yeah. and it all comes undone <laughs> um it, i mean it has dialogue that you'd have to you'd have to try very hard i think to find a more on the nose script than this i mean there's uh you know there's there's terrible lines where he looks at college you know we're going to get our daughter and then you know they fly off to do that and it's it's very po-faced and i think these films work well when there's an injection of humor in it i think emmerich does this quite well where he knows it's preposterous you know he's aware of what he's doing and I think the biggest problem here, really, is that Brad Payton takes it all very, very seriously. Uh, and The Rock especially, you know, he's a guy who is often in stupid situations, often playing ridiculous characters, but he always has, in many ways, literally, one eyebrow cocked, a big grin on his face. He's in on the joke. And this is one of the first films where I didn't feel... I won't say that he wasn't in on the joke. I felt he certainly couldn't express that he was in on the joke. Um and I mean, he's in a slightly thankless task. Just set it up. He's a uh, he's a rescue helicopter pilot, a crack helicopter rescue pilot who, at the beginning, rescues a girl from a car that's hanging off a cliff. You know, he's like the best there is at what he does, and then proceeds to be the worst there is at what he does because as soon as there's an earthquake, he steals a helicopter, which is presumably intended to rescue people, and goes off to save his own family. So, not not in many ways a, a role model type character. His family, in this regard, is uh, is his soon to be ex wife Carla Gugino and his daughter played by uh, true detective Alexandra Daddario. And I think, weirdly, it's those two I feel a little bit the most sorry for. They're, they're in, and Helen would be the first to jump on this, were she here, they're in very thankless female roles in this, where they do an awful lot of screaming and they require an awful lot of saving. And I think a little bit more effort could have been put into making them a little bit more self-sufficient and more dynamic. And as I say, the dialogue for this really does clank all the way along. And, and you know, the rock struggles to sort of make the most of it. But... If you want to see a film about the whole of California falling into the earth, then this is probably the one to go for. Like I say, from a visual point of view, it's it's stunning. There's lots to enjoy. Uh, it's just not what I would describe as a great film. We gave it two stars. Uh, mm. So go and see it if you feel like watching some some random destruction. Other than that, maybe give it a miss. Intriguing. And does it feel real? Does it feel like... Yes, very much so. I mean, yeah. From an effects point of view, it really does feel real. I, I, was, I was pretty pretty impressed actually with the way they there's an element of invention to it because it's not just there's an earthquake the ground is shaking things are falling into the ground uh they've got so they play dominoes with skyscrapers in the literal sense they're just crashing into each other knocking them down the rock at one point is flying a helicopter through them all there's a good sequence with a boat and there's flooding and you know they they, they take steps to sort of ratchet up the tension because what you do when you know, the whole of California is falling into the ground. What should we do? Let's have a tsunami! You know, so you add sections of that as well. So it, it mixes up a little bit. Um, Paul Giamatti's an odd character in this because he's uh, sort of the voice of science. He's almost like an unofficial narrator. He sits in his little sort of uh, earthquake HQ and sends out warnings to everyone that this is coming and then occasionally hides under a table but doesn't actually get to go out and do anything. Mm. Uh, so that's, uh, that's a slightly odd role for him. But, you know, The Rock saves two people and uh, <laughs> and there we get we to see a lot of buildings fall down
Two stars then for San Andres. And very quickly, Phil, uh, yeah. let's talk about Danny Collins, which stars Al Pacino as an aging musician. That's correct. He plays the titular Danny Collins, who is a man who has found great fame and fortune. He's super wealthy, but somehow lost his soul. Think of it as a kind of geriatric Maguire. Do you see what do, I did there? Do we need to do any more? Yeah. <laughs> I think you've just... um, no, listen, it's enjoyable. It's nice to see Al Pacino doing something proper, you know, and getting maybe a little bit away from Jack and Jill country and doing something that's, you know, he seems to be having fun here. Um, it's a little over the top and Pacino-y in that sense, but um, there's fun to be had. There's a nice cast around him. He's a man who's trying to basically, uh, he was sent a letter when he was younger that he never received by um, John Lennon, which was basically exalting him, extolling him to go out and follow his creative creative heart rather than the the drugs booze women type stuff and um he belatedly discovers this when his manager christopher Plummer, gives it to him um he's had he's managed to track it down and he then tries to basically put this into implement this and make amends with the people that he's hurt in his life um so yeah the jerry Maguire kind of parallel is is uh, is probably a fair one it's a four-star film and it's very moving and recommended fun watch Recommended. It's, it's written and directed by Dan Fulgerman, who wrote the screenplay for um, Crazy Stupid Love, Crazy Stupid Love, and Last Vegas, which is, I guess, along similar lines. If you like those movies, then maybe Crazy Stupid Love, I think, is is a is a really watchable romantic comedy, um, and he's yeah. got talent, and there's good good stuff in the script too. Okay, excellent. And uh, who doesn't love to see Pacino? Who hang it up on the uh, on the big screen? Uh, also out this week, we don't have a lot of time. Sadly, to get at least we have the Deadlands, which is a, a New Zealand uh, Maori um, action movie, which is the the blessing of Jim Cameron himself, Mr. James Cameron. He's been uh, evangelical about this movie in the states. We gave it four stars. Uh, there's Chant de Chardin in the Connection, uh, which is a uh, French movie about the French Connection, and that's uh, three stars. Then we have Sean Harris, the great Sean Harris in The Goob, three stars for that one as well. And then Timbuktu, which was Oscar nominated for Best Foreign Language Film at this year's Oscars, uh, about the occupation of Mali in 2012, and we gave that four stars as well. Uh, and that is it for this week's Empire Podcast in association with Squarespace. Uh, join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll have a spy double bill. We'll be joined by Paul Feig, the director, and one of his stars, Mr. Peter Serafinovich. Uh, until that fateful day, it's goodbye from Phil. It's goodbye from James, and it's goodbye from me. I'm off to play FIFA until the feds prize it from my cold, dead hands. See you next week. Bye.